rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Next on Drama on One, creatives in conversation. Ivan Boland is remembered as an outstanding poet and academic who broke the mould of Irish poetry and drew new audiences to the form by making women's experiences central to her poems. She was the author of more than 10 poetry collections, including Night Feed, Outside History and Domestic Violence. In her poetry, in her prose memoir Object Lessons and in her work as an anthologist and teacher, she honed an appreciation for the ordinary in life. One of her most cherished poems is Night Feed, a celebration of feeding her infant daughter in the small hours. She taught at Trinity College, UCD, and from 1996 onward was a tenured professor of English at Stanford University. She died in April of 2020. In 2014, Ivan gave her Michael Littleton Memorial Lecture addressing what must have been a deliberately provocative title, Has Poetry a Future? So I should really start by saying immediately that the title of the lecture is ironic. The question, has poetry a future, is not one I would ever ask. It's one that irritates me almost every day. Uh, I would not ask it because I think the question itself is disrespectful. It implies a doubt and it plants a suspicion and it suggests that perhaps this great art, which is foundational to language and civilization, has somehow suddenly become inadequate in our contemporary world. That something in our moment has found it wanting, that we have a future and it doesn't. Looked at this way, of course, the question makes no sense at all. And yet this lecture is about this very subject. It takes as its theme the contradiction that a disrespectful and in many ways meaningless question whether or not poetry has a future has come to be taken seriously. Seriously enough to be repeated in newspapers, in reputable journals, in the words of commentators. The question, with all that it implies, has crept up, has sidled up, has insinuated itself somehow into those subtle layers of believing and wishing and dreaming by which contemporary cultures talk to themselves about their values and about what values they want to hand on. So is it really as bad as that? Well, I think it is. Not, of course, to those who read, write, and love poetry. Among those, there is always a continuous and eloquent advocacy for the art. But over the last 40 or 50 years, a historic assumption that poetry is for the few has gradually turned into a suggestion that poetry is really not necessary for anyone. An erosion of respect has certainly happened and it isn't hard to find examples from this decade, from the one before and the one before that. So let me give you one of those examples. In June 1996, a sober and sobering Arts Council report in England was excerpted and reported by the independent newspaper. So this is what it said. This is how the newspaper reported it. Quote, commenting on the image of poetry, the Arts Council report says, the public has a problem with the image of poetry. It is perceived as out of touch, gloomy, irrelevant, effeminate, highbrow, and elitist. 
Now, the paper didn't claim that as a truth, and not even the Arts Council claimed it as a truth. The truth, we're told, is with those people we don't see, we can't hear, we're never going to meet. The ones, we're told, who showered on the Arts Council questioners that very odd cascade of adjectives, out of touch, gloomy, irrelevant, effeminate, highbrow, and elitist. As the writer Ray Bradbury said, you don't have to burn books to destroy a culture. You just get people to stop reading them. And this, I believe, is how this question, by small increments and by increased visibility, has come to be taken seriously. A culture of negative comment has grown up, questioning the uses of poetry, questioning the purpose of reading it or writing it. And often these comments are delivered in the disguise of a sort of sociological perception that at first might look hard to argue with. So here's another comment from the Guardian paper in England in 2006 under the extremely odd headline, poetry question mark, it'll soon be about as popular as Morris dancing. <laughs> the article says a TV presenter has warned that the art form of Shakespeare and Keats is dying and set to become as quaint as Morris dancing. It goes on to say that this particular presenter fears poetry is going to become extinct. The presenter says it will be like Morris dancing, really interesting to the people who do it, and incomprehensible and slightly annoying to the people who don't. Now, these comments, whatever you think of them, are meant to encourage a mindset. They invite anyone who reads them, who lives as we all do, in a climate when relevance is a cultural priority, to think of poetry as irrelevant. We catch a glimpse of these ideas given hospitality in newspaper articles and important media, appearing with authority through the megaphone of what we once called a dominant culture. I don't think many of the voices who pass on these comments are actually interested in poetry, but like many people who hold that megaphone in a culture, they are interested in restating the relation of the center to the margin. They're at the center, and poetry is on the margin. Now, I, of course, think many of those voices are often suspect and just flat out wrong. Like many working writers, I'm not an admirer of dominant cultures. They have a long history of egregious error. In their time, it was dominant cultures that claimed it would not be safe to give women the vote, that denied that African-Americans could be a central presence in American literature, or that women could be any presence at all in poetry. On all these issues, and many others, they have been proved wrong. And then again, dominant cultures have short memories. They disregard the proof of their errors and just move on to the next one. When these voices assure readers that poetry is not relevant, I never think I am seeing an act of criticism. I think I am seeing an act of condescension. Those who try to persuade readers that poetry is too difficult, is too elite, is not worth the effort, are presuming to decide for them the possessions they are to have or discard on their journey through their own lives. But it isn't dominant cultures I'm pointing at in this lecture. It is us. It is ourselves. I'm not always sure where the latest negative comment on poetry is coming from, but I am sure of one thing. If we let those statements and those adjectives and those casual categorizations gather strength 
and go by with our challenge. We won't just create a silence in which something inaccurate passes through. We will, I believe, come to stand at the edge of a real cultural loss. The problem is it won't be just our loss. The belief that has lasted for centuries on this earth, before the written word and then with it, a belief in poetry, in the inherent music of language, in the plastic language of feeling, all of that will become harder and harder to hand on to our children, our grandchildren, and their children. We're lucky to have a beautiful new granddaughter. I don't want, in a few years, to have to speak to her as if poetry has become like a rainforest, beautiful and necessary, and yet something we failed to protect. But I want to emphasize the cultural loss we face is actually not of poetry. That can't be loss. The loss will be of something else, and I'll come back to that later. So where do we begin in turning back that question, has poetry a future? We can start at the beginning with the way the question is framed and with the errors inside it, which are errors of history and fact, above all with the interpretation of audience and transmission that is so skewed in that question. So let's just imagine for a moment the questions asked in a sincere way. Everyone who writes or reads poetry knows someone like this who comes forward to them and says, listen, how can poetry have a future? Its audience is so small, so few people read it. Compared with fiction or nonfiction, it has a tiny audience. It has a limited distribution. Given those circumstances, surely the future of poetry is at risk, and surely the audience is too limited. The answer is no and no and again no, because those questions are based on a category error and an important one. It's an error that has followed poetry around for years and years and years, and it has to do with the definition of audience. Maybe if we cleared up that definition, I believe the question about poetry and its future would look a little bit different. So here's the category error. We live at a time in a society where the audience is horizontal. We might not use that language, and we might not reach for that term. But when we use the word audience these days, we're talking about something immediate, something we're even part of. This is the horizontal audience, the audience of the 20th and 21st century, now enormously enhanced by technology and communication. We read a book, we draw a special feeling of community and comfort because we know that other people are reading it, people of our own time and moment. There is no doubt a horizontal audience opens a wide landscape of consolation and exchange. People can speak to each other about what they're reading, and now they can do it through social media. It's not that there's not immense advantages and consolation in that horizontal audience, in the human sharing it offers. It's just that in our time, under the weight of our popular culture, we have come to think of this as the only audience. And when we apply its standard to poetry, that is when things become confused. Because poetry doesn't have a horizontal audience, it has a vertical one. Maybe the simplest example of that is to go back to the February of 1821, when John Keats died in Rome. A miserable death, alone except for one friend, Joseph Severn, and buried far from his home and his friends in the Protestant cemetery in Rome, and he was just 25 years of age. 
At the time, almost nobody knew his death or his work. Just three volumes of his poetry existed in very limited editions. Small as those editions were, they were enough. They could meet the demand because there was no demand. It wasn't until eight years after his death that his work was reprinted, and then only by a French publisher called Galignani. His letters, which are so important, were not published until 27 years after his death in 1848. Does that mean Keats had no audience? No, almost the opposite. He had and he has a vast audience, millions and millions of people quoting him, memorizing him, and rereading him. Far more than almost any fiction or nonfiction writer has ever had. Some books are undeservedly forgotten, none are undeservedly remembered, said Auden, and so it is with Keats. John Keats's is not a horizontal audience, it's not a community of readers sharing a contemporary moment. Keats had that important vertical audience characteristic of poetry. It grew and grew over time and in time through two whole centuries, bypassing fashions, ignoring wars. The Keats readers of one generation didn't talk to the readers of another. They never saw them, they never knew them. But one thing is certain, his audience grew into millions right next to the cultural noise that insisted poetry didn't have an audience. It grew into a powerful future, just as people were questioning whether poetry had a future. We have something to learn from these different concepts of audience, but principally we have to learn to come to our own conclusions. When people speak about the future of poetry and ask how it can be secure, this is what they're forgetting. Poetry's audience never was and should not now be measured by the realities of a contemporary culture. By its own standard, by the measure of an audience like Keats has, poetry not only has a future, it challenges us to make new definitions of what the future of a text can be. One of the reasons I chose this topic for the Littleton Lecture is because I feel in Ireland, of all places, we don't have to let this insidious tide of doubt and this demeaning of poetry stand. Poetry is in our history. In Ireland, more than in other countries, it has been a fugitive art, ready to be a companion to a whole people when the silversmith and the musician and the dancing master and the painter had to forsake them because of the sheer weight of history. Poetry remained, poetry stayed with them. And I find out that as far back as when I was a teenager, just beginning to hope I could write poems, not even daring to think I could be a poet, but still able to find the depth and power of the art if it was in front of me. And it was then that I saw the reach of poetry and also its deep social power to heal and change a society. In those teenage years, the poet I read was William Yeats. I was in boarding school. I read the old hardback book with its dark red covers at night under the covers with a flashlight. Yeats showed me what language and craft could do in the hands of a poet with courage and determination. He is still the poet I admire for his ability in his later work to join the vulnerability of the body to the invincible strength of the lyric. And he was near to me because he was born in the same country, wrote of a familiar landscape, seemed to know my thoughts even before a poem was finished. 
and the poem I think is only your voice speaking, writes Virginia Woolf in The Waves, and so it was with Yeats. But I didn't look to Yeats to reveal the importance of poetry. He embodied it. So when I think of my first encounter with a deep and abiding faith in poetry, with an absolute conviction that the existence of poetry in a society could be transformative, I think of something and someone quite different. When I was 18, I was a student at Trinity. Like any student at a university, I read poetry as a canonical fact. This is the way it was taught, we were told. Here are the poems, here's the history of the poems, here's what to learn and what to remember. With all I learned, I had no idea that poetry could be at risk or could be put in danger by history or that it had once been forced to shine out of a darkness with enormous effort and pain. I was a girl who'd left a boarding school with enormous gaps in my history, in my understanding of Ireland, in my sense of the long tributary that flows full of voices and experience towards any young person who wants to be a poet in their own country. And then at the age of 18, staying with my parents, I took a book up at random from my father's bookshelf. I read The Hidden Ireland by Daniel Corkery, published in 1925. The story in the book is known to many people, but I'll describe it briefly. The book follows the curved and shattered narrative of the Cromwellian clearances, and it lands in their aftermath in a small part of Gaelic Munster, which is Slieve Lurcra, that mountainous area on the Cork and Kerry border. Corkery chronicles the 18th century in that region. Corkery's writing about the poets such as Egon O'Rahilly and Owen Ruel Sulwain, who spoke their Irish language, wrote poetry in it, and were just about to lose everything. The person I was at 18 who took that book upstairs with its drawing of the blind Harper Carolyn on the cover had no idea of the controversies and passions that surrounded that book and the time in which it was written. I didn't know that Sean O'Fallon himself had spoken of the book as, quote, an arrangement of facts and of half-facts, of pious beliefs by a man with an inadequate knowledge of Irish history, unquote. That evening, when I read on and on, I knew nothing about that. All I could see was that Daniel Corkery was asserting what the American poet Robert Penn Warren put in other words when he said, the poem is not a thing we see. It is rather a light by which we may see. All I knew was that I stopped on one page at one passage, and everything I was or hoped to be heard what that passage said and hoped it was true. Here is the passage in which Daniel Corkery describes the poets of Munster. In reading those poets, we are to keep in mind, first, that the nature of the poetry depended on the district in which it was written, if in Munster it is literary in its nature, if in Ulster or Connacht it has the simple directness of folk song, then we must remember that the poets were simple men, living as peasants in rural surroundings. Some of them probably never saw a city. Not only this, but they were all poor men, very often sore troubled where and how to find shelter, clothing, food at the end of a day's tramping. Their native culture is ancient, harking back to pre-Renaissance standards, but there is no inflow of books from outside to impregnate it with new thoughts. 
Their language is dying. Around them is the drip, drip of callous decay. Famine overtakes famine, or the people are cleared from the land to make room for bullocks. The rocks and hidden mountain clefts are the only altars left to them, and teaching is a felony. Not to excuse, but to explain them are these facts mentioned. For their poetry, though doubtless the poorest chapter in the book of Irish literature, is in itself no poor thing that needs excuse. It is, contrary-wise, a rich thing, a marvelous inheritance, bright with music, flushed with color, deep with human feeling. And to see it against the dark world that threw it up is to be astonished, if not dazzled. In Daniel Corkery's words, I found the beginning of something I will come back to later a passionate conversation about poetry that points to its values and highlights its power and importance and seemed to be a conversation I could join. I would look for that conversation wherever I went from then on, and I always hoped in some small way I could add to it. And as I said, I'll come back to that idea of a poetic conversation later. Daniel Corkery's words point to a poetic past about poets trapped there as if they were on an island of ice with their language dying and history against them. And yet against the dark world, as he says, that threw them up, they shone, so that even now their example brightens our sense of what poetry can be. In his Nobel address, Seamus Heaney spoke about hopes for poetry, not too different. Yet there are, he said, times when a deeper need enters, when we want the poem to be not only pleasurably right, but compellingly wise, not only a surprising variation played upon the world, but a retuning of the world itself. So in this context and others, what I always find surprising is the willingness of even distinguished writers to try to argue people out of poetry. At the Hay Festival in 2007, Martin Amos, a writer I otherwise admire, said, this is an excerpt of his remarks, quote, you may have noticed, he said, that poetry is dead. The obituary has already been written. It has a ghoulish afterlife in readings and poetry slams. Not many people curl up of an evening with a book of poetry. Do we like any of those moments of communion with the poet? Reading a poem involves self-examination. We don't have that time or inclination. Unquote. Well, Martin Amos is right about one thing there. A poem does involve self-examination, but something else as well. The future of poetry, like its past, is always going to live longest and have its most secure home in human memory. In what Paula Meehan called in a memorable phrase from her first inaugural lecture as Ireland Professor of Poetry, the ghost life of the word. Who would want to take away that ghost life from people? Who would want to write its obituary? What would be the purpose of striking at the entry of a poem into people's lives? The most compelling statement I ever came across that marks that place where poetry enters the lives of others is in a poem the late Adrienne Rich, great American poet, wrote at the end of a book called An Atlas of the Difficult World. What she wrote about there is her sense of the people she is never going to see but that she feels she knows and wants to touch. They are the people who are going to read this poem. Her poem tries to imagine 
the lives it's going to touch, the people who will receive it into their hard daily experiences, who are going to find its language important in framing that experience and that future. The poem is written with a profound sense of responsibility to those people. The poem is called Dedications. Whenever I hear people ask whether poetry has a future, this is the poem I think of first, Dedications. I know you are reading this poem late, before leaving your office of the one intense yellow lamp spot and the darkening window in the lassitude of a building faded quiet long after rush hour. I know you are reading this poem standing up in a bookstore far from the ocean on a gray day of early spring, faint flakes driven across the plains, enormous spaces around you. I know you are reading this poem in a room where too much has happened for you to bear, where the bedclothes lie in stagnant coils on the bed and the open valise speaks of flight, but you cannot leave yet. I know you are reading this poem as the underground train loses momentum and before running up the stairs toward a new kind of love your life has never allowed. I know you are reading this poem by the light of the television screen where soundless images jerk and slide while you wait for the newscast from the Intifada. I know you are reading this poem in a waiting room of eyes met and unmeeting, of identity with strangers. I know you are reading this poem by fluorescent light in the boredom and fatigue of the young who are counted out, count themselves out at too early an age. I know you are reading this poem through your failing sight, the thick lens enlarging these letters beyond all meaning, yet you read on because even the alphabet is precious. I know you are reading this poem as you pace beside the stove, warming milk, a crying child on your shoulder, a book in your hand, because life is short and you too are thirsty. I know you are reading this poem which is not in your language, guessing at some words while others keep you reading and I want to know which words they are. I know you are reading this poem listening for something, torn between bitterness and hope, turning back once again to the task you cannot refuse. I know you are reading this poem because there is nothing else left to read, there where you have landed, stripped as you are. In 1813, the French-American naturalist John James Audubon saw a flight of passenger pigeons near his home in the American Midwest. In the autumn of 1813, he wrote, I left my house at Henderson on the banks of the Ohio. I observed the pigeons flying from northeast to southwest in greater numbers than I had ever seen them before. Audubon was startled by the sheer volume of the birds in flight and by their beauty as they flew. Quote, the dense mass, he said, which they form exhibits a beautiful appearance as they change direction. And he went on, they now display a glistening sheet of azure that suddenly present a mass of rich, deep purple. They now alight, but the next moment, as if suddenly alarmed, they take to flight, producing by the flapping of their wings a noise like the roar of distant thunder. To the people who saw it, 
The passenger pigeon was a bird of fantastic abundance. They seemed to fly in almost mythical numbers. In fact, they accounted for a quarter of all the birds in America. In the mid-19th century, an approaching flock of them blotted out the sun in a little town, causing the children to cry and run away. Nesting birds seized forests and filled whole trees. Almost everyone who saw them left a record of the sheer noise of their wings as they approached and left. A hundred years after James Audubon saw the blue and purple of their wings, the passenger pigeon was extinct. It was hunted into non-existence throughout the 19th century, the hunting made more possible and expansive by the arrival of the railroad. The last one, a bird called Martha, died in the Cincinnati Zoo in 1914. Why do I bring this up? Because I said I would come back to try to define just what it is we lose if we don't challenge the disrespect of questions like has poetry a future. Because the story of the passenger pigeon is essentially the story of how the values of an age destroyed one of the wonders of an age. The wholesale 19th century sanction of hunting, the acceptance of it as a profitable enterprise, has made it impossible for any of us ever again to see those huge tides of light and those color-changing wings which so many people were amazed by. In one sense, there can't be any direct comparison between what happened to that bird and the future of poetry. Poetry is not going to become extinct. It will never be hunted out of existence. No one has the power in any way or shape or kind to extinguish what is essentially a faculty of the human spirit. As soon as a human being is born, that possibility of poetry is born with them. But there is an indirect comparison. There cannot be any damage done to what poetry is. The future of poetry in which poems will exist is beyond reach. But there are aspects to the future of poetry that I think can and are being damaged in what has happened over the past few decades, those casual dismissals and those disrespectful assertions. As well as being an art, poetry has always been a conversation, a rich exchange about language, vision, and craft. It is what I found on those pages with Daniel Corkery. And it's a conversation that has been traditionally conducted across experiences, across educations, across generations, across centuries. Part of the origins of the conversation may be simple. As the late American poet Galway Cannell said, to me, poetry is somebody standing up and saying with as little concealment as possible what it is for him or her to be on earth at this moment. But part of the conversation is complex. Yeats wrote in The Death of Singh, his prose elegy, I now see that the literary element in painting, the moral element in poetry are the means whereby the two arts are accepted into the social order and become a part of life. The way in which poetry becomes part of all our lives and the lives of our children is guided and noted by the poetic conversation of a decade, of a half century, of a generation. If that conversation falters, if it falls into disrespect and dismissal, if it becomes shadowed by that lack of honor that is now pervasive in some places, then I think we will encounter the real cultural loss I spoke about. 
But we won't keep that conversation alive and vital if we just concede quietly to this strange, malign climate that says poetry is not relevant, not useful, need not be read. It is the conversation that most closely resembles the passenger pigeon in which an uncontested set of contemporary values puts at risk something precious and important and something we do need to keep. How do we keep it? I have always felt that Ireland might well be the country where the future of poetry would never be in doubt and where the conversation about poetry will remain alive, even if sometimes contentious. Since I was a young poet, it is institutions like this one, RTE, Radio Erin as I knew it, who hosted poets over and over and over again, the Irish Times, which presented poetry as central to the cultural life of the country, in schools now, on their websites, and in the outreach of excellent places like Poetry Ireland, there are similar energies and similar commitments. But in the end, poetry lives beyond institutions. Its iconic moment is that midnight when somebody goes to their bookshelf and takes down a marked page and opens it and finds the words to continue to understand their life. It is that moment and the conversation around it and the honor that we do it that we are stewards of in this generation. It is that moment we have an obligation to hand on to the next generation. Thank you. We have a, a question from the House, so maybe if you would first of all identify yourself and then give us your question. Thank you. My name is Austin O'Brien. Uh, I wonder, could I ask Ivan, is there, or to what extent or how significant is history or particular events in history being in her own writings? Thank you for the question. I think it's a kind of an answer that, you know, is, is sort of complicated for me. It's certainly what happened in the past matters a lot to me and has been defining. But I think when I was a younger poet, I began to think there was a great difference between the past and history. I think, you know, history is the official version and it tells the story and puts the names down. Um, and that official version was not something I felt I would find my way to. But the past, which is full of shadows and histories, people who are not named, I became more and more drawn to that. So I think the answer, maybe not so helpfully to the question, is yes and no. <laughs> yes, we have a further question here. Uh, Mary Clayton, um, you mentioned a category error in the definition of the audience for poetry. And I wondered also whether there isn't a category error in the definition of poetry. Um, your quotation from Corkery to revert to that mentioned folk songs, for example. And I just wondered how broadly you would interpret poetry in, in that context. I'm always willing to interpret poetry just as widely as anybody wants. I like slams. I like a whole lot of poetry as it happens in front of me. I consider myself one kind of a poet. You know, it's, it's a very, very, very broad church. I mean, and I'm hugely interested in meeting different kinds of poets. And I know if I meet them, they're going to have different purposes. You know, a slam poet 
wants to get up and have that great effect through the speech and music of speech. I probably belong to the other tribe that wants it to be there on the page the next morning, but I don't think that's a, a, a superior version. It's just the one I know. A uh, lady in the balcony. Geraldine Gitton is my name. And I was just wondering, as a poet, um, just thinking about the future, do you feel a burden of responsibility, just even the idea of future and speaking to the future and your voice being heard? Is that a burden? You know, I, I think, well, thanks for the question. I think that the responsibility, you know, I, the only responsibility I feel or should feel is to write the poem so it gets written. I mean, any other responsibilities you get into, I feel, you know, as a poet, will drag you into some kind of self-importance you should really stay out of. But in terms of the cultural responsibility of not letting people be dismissive of poetry, I feel that just as a citizen. I mean, I feel when I see these things that say, you know, we all know poetry is dead. No, we don't. You know, and I don't think I should let it by. But I probably say that as a reader, not as a writer. Um, the responsibility, you know, poets only write poems. That's all they do. And the only kind of responsibility you have is to prevent what you're writing from deteriorating sharply. I think that would be uh, the thing to do. In the poem that you, you read for us, Dedications, uh, several different types of reader are mentioned within that. Is there... A, any sense of responsibility to the reader when you're writing, is that part of it? Well, not with me, but I think, that, you know, that's an incredibly beautiful Whitmanian poem. You know, it's really Walt Whitman's vision of America. And I think, you know, the idea that language could touch those lives, I certainly think it's an honor if it does. It wouldn't be a purpose of mine. Gentleman here. Uh, Brian Cosgrove. Since Ivan is herself uh, teaching in a university, I think my question would be, does she in part agree at least that some of the promotion of literature in a university is not helpful to the recognition of poetry as poetry? Well, and thank you for the question, because I think it raises a, a number of very important issues. I, I may not entirely agree with you, but I do recognize all those importances. Yes, I do teach uh, at Stanford, and I, I do teach poetry. And I agree with you that the politicization of, of poetry can, can be problematic. But, you know, I think if you come into a classroom and you put something in front of students, what you always hope is that they'll walk out of that classroom with something of their own not just something that you're laying down the tablets of the law. And I think we have a better chance of doing that these days. The era of the passive student is well over. And so I'm not quite as um, pessimistic as you might be on, on it. You know, John Keats, I think, stands up well. And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people, they remember these half fractions, these half stanzas, these half things, and they love them. A lot of professors taught me stuff at Trinity, and I was not the most assiduous student, but I remember what they taught me, and I'm grateful for it, you know. Uh, something got between my ears from it. Young gentleman in yes. the balcony. Um, my name is Stephen Clare. Um, you said during your lecture that poetry has a vertical audience. Do you think that poetry um, would benefit from a horizontal audience or suffer from it with the 
rise of the internet as an avenue for accessibility and sharing, excuse me, <laughs> of art of all kinds, especially, um, especially poetry and uh, stuff like slam poetry. Do you think that poetry, which has a horizontal audience, that audience of, of sharing and other voices, do you think that's beneficial, or do you think poetry should be more of a solitary activity, something pondered over I, late I at night? I think there's something enormously beneficial about this community that is spreading wide, and I think it's extremely interesting. But I do think that the vertical audience is true. If you take Wallace Stevens, who, who is really an excellent poet, and you put him in his moment, his first book, Harmonium, which is now so revered, sold 500 copies over seven years, you know? I mean, if you were following Harmonium around, you would have said that's the end of Wallace Stevens. But no, it crept along, and people began to look at it. I think the old adage that a poet creates the audience that reads them is true, but it can be a slow business. It's not for one moment that I don't have great regard. Certainly, song has a great horizontal audience, and there are places but I still think the vertical audience holds true in a lot of cases. Thank you. Gentleman here. Hello, Art Agnew, the Patrick Cavanagh Centre in uh, I just wanted to ask you about uh, your feelings about encouraging poetry as a spoken word. There was a contemporary of mine in Carrick Macross, her name was Josephine Hart, and Josephine Hart, as she said herself, rescued the spoken word in the Donmar Theatre in, in London to go along and to give people an idea of the entertainment there is involved in listening to somebody recite poetry. Now, so the, me, your question is the importance I'm just of asking the spoken her about, word. About, yeah. about her own opinion on it, but I really was just talking. Well, if we can let Paula address the Paul, question... Paula Meehan is here in the audience, and to listen to Paula reciting her poetry. As I said about it, it's just like words that float across from her tongue into your ear and they nestle there and decide which junction they're going to head for, either for your brain or for your emotions. So I, what's your idea now? I couldn't agree with you more about Paula. <laughs> anyway, so, anyway. Yes. <laughs> but I do have great admiration for spoken word. And I have a huge amount uh, of sense of the great things they do and, and the participation they offer. We have uh, a lady at the back of the balcony. Hi, my name is Mary Elaine, and I'm a secondary school English teacher. And just first of all, I want to say thank you very much. It's a pleasure teaching you. Um, and I mean a joy as a teacher. But what I wanted to ask you was just about, I suppose, what you thought of the way secondary school poetry was taught, and in particular, I suppose, the way we, we've now broken it down into male and female poets and... I just wondered if you have a problem with that. No, I, I don't have a problem. I have great admiration for teachers, especially contemporary teachers now. I think that, you know, I, I see Nal McMonagall in this audience who did so much in Wesley. Transformative teaching matters so much, and it's changed over the last 30 years. You know, I should say this very brief anecdote. You know, teaching used to be somewhat sterner. There was a little boy lived opposite us in Dundrum, and he was very mischievous, and he was coming home up the road one day at about 11 a.m., and he said, you know, I've had to come home. I left the taps on or something from school. And he said, and I have a punishment. I said, well, what's your punishment? He says, I have to learn a poem. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of, that's a long time ago. And I think what's happened in the meantime has been this really 
wonderful change in addressing poetry. And I admire it because I think it's hard to do. I do. Don't mind the divisions or subdivisions or anything like that. Just on, on those divisions, I think in an interview at one point you talked about when you began to write in Ireland that the actual quote is, the word woman and the word poet seem to be in some sort of magnetic opposition to each other. Are they, are they any closer to each other oh, now? Absolutely. Paula. And, uh, I mean, I think there are great amounts of women doing excellent writing in Ireland in poetry. I, I think people recognise that women have added a voice to poetry that couldn't be done without. In the old days, there seemed to be some sense that women were diluting uh, Irish poetry or something. There was, there was some kind of view that women could be women poets, but not Irish poets. And I think that's all gone. I really do. Gentleman here. My name is Barry O'Shanon. I was just wondering, um, I've been taking a, a course there called The Authority of the Poet, and we've been talking about, I suppose, um, the 20th century poets, Patrick Cavan and Robert Lowell, and I suppose the, them grappling with um, self-evaluation, I guess. One question I had was, uh, for contemporary poets, do you think uh, do you think they have a sense of uh, authority now, like like yourself or anyone else? Um, and is it a conviction within society that they have an audience? Well, I think they're two different questions. I think that the idea of the authority of the poet has come under a lot of pressure. I, I think that um, the idea that there's some kind of ordained authority, you know, that that really took a hammering, even in... I think it's why Elizabeth Bishop is looked at with great respect and lower less. But I think Kavanaugh was a very subversive figure, and he undermined the worst parts of the authority of the poet. I don't think it's any anybody can count on it. As I said, I think poets just write poems, you know. You can have all the authority you like as a poet, but if your poems don't have it, you know, that's it. Um, so the other point on audience, I think, is elusive. Uh, but the authority of the poet, I would agree, it's a kind of central question. In the balcony once again, please. My name is Naya McKittrick. Um, I have a question. Do you, ha do you think there's much like difference between written in Irish poems and then written in English? Yes, I mean, I, I, think, I think that the question is always going to be the choice of the writer. And there's a very strong uh, literature in English. There's an incredibly distinguished uh, literature in the Irish language. You know, it's interesting to think that Samuel Beckett, um, one of the great Irish writers, wrote quite a bit of his work in French. But in the end, that instinctive homing to the language in which you can do your work will always remain a subjective choice. Do you, feel, do you think that the Irish language, even though you write in the, in the English language, do you think that that uh, ancestral memory, perhaps, of the Irish language, how does it inform your writing in English? Well, I think it's always going to. You're not always necessarily going to be conscious of it. I mean, Nuala Nigonal is particularly interesting on this, on the shadows and the echoes that are there. I don't think you're always going to see where those shadows and echoes are, but they're undoubtedly there in, in, in your sensibility, in, in your outlook. I mean, she's written really outstandingly, you know, in The Corpse That Wouldn't Lie Down, uh, in that essay on, on where these echoes and shadows are. Paula Meehan. Um, Yvonne, uh, thanks for the nourishment. I don't know if these are questions or they're kind of ongoing questions, but um, many, many years ago when I was starting out, uh, on the confused path of poetry, 
I came to you and I said, have you any advice? And um, all you said was, yes, I have. Just turn up, which was fantastic advice. Say in that, Paula. I know, I know, um, because I did expect some elaborate, mysterious um, uh, in, if you like, to the path of poetry. But just turning up seemed to me to relocate all the responsibility back into the self, which was very both liberating and terrifying at the time. Um, and I think, you know, I have been turning up um, into the strangest of circumstances, I have to say, ever since. But something else you said which continues to resonate, um, I heard you say it at a workshop, one of the old Eastern Washington University workshops. You said that when you started, you know, to push out with the poetry, that it was more usual to find a gun in an Irish poem than it was to find a baby. By the time I came along, you had kind of cleared plenty of space for the babies. Mm. Um, but you did uh, encourage the participants to problematize, to bring what was problematizing the poem into the poem, not to leave it outside, which I think was very kind of radical um, advice for any poet starting out, which I, I continue to try and um, do. Um, even though the problems change all the time, and I think they probably change for every generation. So as I say, that's not really a question, more a remark. <laughs> but thank you for the nourishment. Perhaps I, could give a, perhaps I could give a final question then, picking up on Paula's, Paula Meehan's remarks. How onerous or how joyous is it to you at this point in your poetic life to continue to turn up? Oh, it's a joy. I mean, it's, a, it, it's one of the things I think you always want to do. I mean, I think Paul and I turned up anyway for a lot of things. Um, but I think that, although I'm horrified to think I said that to you, Paula, I mean, really, you know, but, uh, <laughs> but nevertheless, I mean, but, but nevertheless, the idea of being there, of giving that witness, of being part of things, of being part of that conversation. That's one of the great privileges for poets. I mean, the reason we so lament the poets that aren't there, Kavanaugh, Keats, whatever, is they start the conversation that they can't always enter and continue. And so I think it's a huge privilege, and of course it's a joy to, to be part of that conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, Ivan Boland. Thank you. And that brings the 2014 Michael Littleton Lecture to a close. Thanks to Mark Dwyer and Gar Duffy, who are on sound. Producer was Kevin Reynolds. The final and most important thanks goes to Ivan Boland. A vivid memorial to a much-missed literary voice. In that edition of Creatives in Conversation, you heard the late Ivan Boland in an excerpt from her 2014 Michael Littleton Memorial Lecture. The complete archive of Creatives in Conversation and all editions of the Drama on One podcast are available at rte.ie forward slash drama on one. rte.ie forward slash drama on one.